Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Richard Haas has written my book of the summer. It's the world, and I'll make real clear, take it and throw it at any smart mouth college kid you know and beg them to at least read the first 150 pages, which is a tour de force on the Western civilization we've all forgotten, or quite frankly, we never took. Ambassador Haas joins us now from the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador, in your book, The World, you write about war between countries. Are we now at war with China? No, Tom, uh, we're not at war with China, but uh, the, the entire trajectory of this relationship has uh, changed uh, compared to what it was for what? The United States and China built a relationship 50 years ago. We originally worked together against the Soviet Union. Then our economic interaction essentially became the foundation of the relationship. That economic interaction has now become a source of friction. But what you're seeing, particularly on the American side, is a real ramping up of rhetoric against China. At a time, China's becoming more assertive in its foreign policy. We're not at war. But this is a relationship that uh, seems to have lost any positive dimension, any rationale, and increasingly it's marked by confrontation. Ambassador, I want you to go to a time and place long ago. James McGregor Burns was great about this, about how we developed the State Department, how we developed a foreign voice as Americans. Please comment on the tone, the discourse of our Secretary of State this week. To me, it's original, really, within the 20th century in this new century. Is it? Uh, I'm hard-pressed uh, to find a parallel, Tom. I hear where you're going, and uh, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. Uh, our chief diplomat is going out of his way, not just to be undiplomatic, there's a time to be that, but to be publicly provocative, insulting his counterparts in, in, in China. Essentially, yesterday, in a speech at the Nixon Library, almost delegitimizing, not almost, delegitimizing the current leadership of China. Uh, and essentially, it came very close, very close to, to calling for regime change in China. The, the parallels between his approach to Iran and the approach we heard yesterday in China, I thought were, were pronounced... Okay. You know, Richard, this is really, really important. The Peace Hotel over in Shanghai yesterday on Twitter put out a photograph of their acclaimed British room where Henry Kissinger, I believe, slept the night before he went to Beijing to change history. Are we giving up all that was accomplished in the early 1970s? I don't, yeah, it's too soon to say that. Uh, we don't know how much of this is tactical, political, to be, to be blunt, in our own context in the run-up to November. We'll have to see what, what happens. But this is extreme. This is, this, this, the idea, by the way, this is ironic, that the speech took place at the Nixon Library. Nixon was willing to find common cause with China despite all of our fundamental political and social differences. Yesterday, the Secretary of State ignored the potential for the United States to work together despite our, our political differences and instead harped on those differences. It's as if he's looking for a fight with China. And I think, again, this, is, this relationship, anytime you have a relationship between a rising power and existing power, we know that this is difficult. It calls for really subtle, deft 
statecraft on both sides. Whatever else you want to call yesterday's speech, I would not use adjectives like subtle and deft. Maybe that's the tactic. I don't know, Richard. Something else I don't know is what is the strategy? What is the strategy at the moment? Can you identify what it is? No, sir. Uh, Traditionally in foreign policy, the strategy is to change the external behavior of other countries. Now, if our goal, you know, we could have legitimate goals about changing China's approach to trade. We could have goals about getting them to ease up in Hong Kong or not to deal with the Uyghurs the way they are, to stop with their unilateral claims in the South China Sea. All of those would be within the traditional realm of a foreign policy. That would be a strategy. We would work with our allies to bring it about. Instead, in yesterday's speech, you have the Secretary of State berating our allies, including Germany, and again, not making clear what exactly it is we want China to do that is in the realm of foreign policy. Richard, Tom Keane started this asking, are we at war with China? You said, no, that's a stretch. But is that the outcome that we're getting toward? I mean, what is sort of the trigger points here and the possible tit-for-tat escalation that could be a worst-case scenario? We've had now the tit-for-tat. We close Houston, they close Chengdu. Uh, I would think the most dangerous thing for the next few months uh, would be an incident in something like the South China Sea. China has unilateral claims. We, We correctly do not accept their maritime claims. We're sending ships to the region to demonstrate we consider these waters to be international. The idea that you could have some type of a military incident that could then potentially escalate, I don't think, is, is out of the question. So for me, the next few months, some type of a military incident. And then the question is, do these two countries have the ability to manage it? Do they have the desire to manage it? That I would put, uh, that, that to me is the greatest near-term danger. Richard, do you buy that the phase one trade deal is still on? Well, it's on, it's on on paper. It's never been close to being implemented. To some extent, that's because of the, the, the context, uh, you know, given to the coronavirus. Uh, it's, it's on in paper. You know, there's no movement whatsoever towards a phase two. I think that would only change if, if Mr. Trump were, were reelected. And I think suddenly my guess would be that you'd see a slight winding down of this hostility towards China. If he were uh, reelected, there would be a desire for some type of uh, a deal that would that would you know, increase U.S. exports to uh, China. That's been the centerpiece of his foreign policy, to essentially try to bring about trade deals that increased U.S. exports. But for the time being, nothing's going to happen. The Chinese have zero incentive to, to implement the phase one deal. Ambassador, as we wrap up this conversation, I think you've touched on something really, really important, just reflecting on everything you've said. Typically, diplomacy is surgical. You really think out what you're doing and work out the whole range of responses the other side might respond with. And I have been asking that question this week, just how surgical the approach has been from this administration. And I think the one thing a lot of people are worried about is the prospect, the scope for an accident in some realm of confrontation with China. Where do you see that potentially happening? Well, you're right. First of all, this is anything but surgical. Surgical would have been, for example, rather than closing the Houston consulate, we might have asked quietly and privately for certain diplomats to leave. We might have placed some restrictions on certain students. Closing a consulate is the opposite of surgical. That, that, that's sledgehammer uh, material. Uh, I, again, I think you'll see heated rhetoric for the next few months. I think the most 
two things to look for. One, I already mentioned, a, a military incident. The other is, I wouldn't be shocked, given Secretary Pompeo's speech, is you saw if you saw some broad sanctions against members of the Chinese Communist Party. We're talking about something like 92 million people, the leadership of China. Don't be surprised if you see travel restrictions or something like that, which have been talked about. Basically, escalating not just the rhetoric, but this attack on the leadership structure of, uh, of China. And I think that's a, that's a possibility. I want to go back to one of Ambassador Haas's older books. We're trying to sell them all here today. This was a movie you'll see at Memorial Day next year. Foreign Policy Begins at Home. Ambassador Haas, you never imagined a four or five trillion dollar deficit. Granted, it's often national disaster. How has our foreign policy, our projection to the world, changed with this new massive deficit? It raises questions about American competence. It raises questions about the role of the dollar as the, the world's de facto currency, as, the, as its reserve uh, currency. It p- potentially uh, introduces elements of American uh, vulnerability. This is all fine to run these deficits when interest rates are at historic lows. But even small movements up in, in interest rates would, would totally transform the American economic picture. What I think we've done here is we have introduced a potential source of vulnerability. Uh, Debt, Tom, is one of those things that it's fine until it's not. So in a sense, we're merrily going along, racking it up at record rates. And that will be fine until the day it's not. And that will be a real day of reckoning. But I do think it hastens the emergence of a, of a world, not with a clear alternative to the dollar, but where the dollar loses uh, the, the near monopoly it has uh, on international transactions. That'll be a conversation in the next hour. Ambassador, always fortunate to get you on the show. Appreciate your time this morning. Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the most interesting politician. He's a former prime minister of Latvia, providing great leadership out of the financial crisis. Valdis Dombrovsky brings economics and physics to his duties as a European Union commissioner for financial services, and he helps us pick up the debris one week on from exhaustive meetings in Europe. Valdis, I have to broaden out the conversation right now to how Europe approaches these new tensions with the United States, the new tensions with China. Is there a European foreign policy? Uh, first of all, uh, as regards uh, uh, the uh, international uh, uh, tensions, inc- uh, including uh, international uh, trade tensions, uh, uh, EU uh, uh, policy has been uh, very uh, clear. Uh, we are uh, supporting and defending uh, multilateral rules-based system. And this is an approach uh, which uh, we are uh, uh, taking in the negotiations with US, with uh, China. Uh, that's why we are not supportive, for example, uh, of unilateral moves of US in the area of uh, trade. But at the same time, we uh, share a number of uh, uh, concerns uh, 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 regarding uh, China, including questions on uh, intellectual property rights, uh, 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 forced technology transfer, uh, uh, reciprocity in our trade and investment uh, relationships. So there are a number of uh, issues which we think to address, but we think uh, those should be addressed while respecting uh, international rules. How do you adapt then and adjust to the Secretary of State on his tour through London and through Denmark and then back over to San Francisco this week? The assertive tone of the Trump administration, how do you and uh, Ms. Ms. Vestiger and the rest, how do you adapt to that in Europe? 
Uh, well, uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, as you know, uh, uh, EU and US uh, had its uh, uh, trade uh, tensions. Uh, we uh, managed to uh, reach uh, uh, an agreement avoiding further escalation and uh, currently uh, we are uh, building on uh, that. So one can discuss that the tone is uh, assertive, uh, but uh, at the same time we are negotiating and we have reached uh, a, a degree of uh, agreement. Well, we know that initially US were taking unilateral uh, actions like unilaterally raising uh, tariffs, we were responding uh, in uh, kind, in a proportionate way. But at the end of the day, we avoided uh, further uh, escalation and reached a uh, uh, agreement on which we can now uh, build. Commissioner, we've heard a lot from Europe about the multilateral response. Can we talk about concrete steps? You yourself have talked about the asymmetry of market access between Europe and China. You talk about reciprocity as well. Can you talk to us about concrete steps? What are you doing to get the Chinese Communist Party to change? Well, uh, actually, uh, we are currently negotiating with a China investment uh, agreement and uh, we are uh, currently uh, preparing the next uh, EU-China economic dialogue uh, to uh, discuss exactly these uh, issues. And uh, we hope that we will be in due course actually uh, able to uh, conclude our negotiations on investment agreement and the issues we are uh, discussing with uh, uh, China in these negotiations are exactly Exactly the questions of uh, uh, access to uh, China's market, reciprocity, uh, investment conditions, non-tariff barriers. So all uh, these uh, issues are on agenda in our investment negotiations uh, with China. Commissioner, how much is the European Union working with the United States as tensions increase with China in both regions? Well, uh, as I said, we share a number of uh, concerns of uh, U.S. and we have uh, similar uh, concerns and definitely we are uh, working with U.S. to see how uh, most uh, effectively to address these concerns. But uh, we think that uh, uh, it should be done within, uh, within multi, uh, multilateral uh, framework, within uh, the framework of World Trade Organization. Yeah. We know that we need a reform of World Trade Organization and we are willing to uh, cooperate uh, and coordinate our actions on this with uh, US, but what we are saying is that one should refrain from unilateral actions because it just escalates the tensions uh, further and uh, at the end of the day negatively affects uh, international trade and negatively affects global economy. Commissioner, thank you for addressing the news of the moment, particularly this morning. If we can get you to address the news of this week for Europe, which was a massive step forward for the continent and fiscal integration, can you just walk us through next steps from here when we can expect the debt issuance from the European Commission? over the next several months when that money will be raised? Uh, well, uh, indeed. So uh, early this week, uh, uh, EU summit decided on the next uh, seven years EU budget, so from 2021 uh, to 2027, uh, and on the EU economic uh, recovery uh, package uh, worth uh, 750 billion euros. So this is a major step uh, forward. So we welcome this uh, 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 this uh, agreement of the summit. Well, there are further procedural steps. Currently, we are uh, uh, starting negotiations with European Parliament because also European Parliament uh, needs to uh, agree uh, to this multi-annual budget and the recovery plan. Yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, we from European Commission side, we consider it important that negotiations are uh, finalized swiftly uh, so that the 
next uh, multi-annual EU budget and recovery plan can uh, start uh, acting as of January 1st next year. And that's when uh, European Commission also would start this uh, common uh, issuance uh, of uh, debt in order to finance EU economic recovery plan. Uh, even though it must be said that some elements uh, we will be uh, going to markets already uh, this year uh, because uh, uh, here we are talking about economic recovery plan. Yeah. But we took lots of crisis yeah. measures in previous months, including, uh, for example, 100 billion euros sure program to support uh, employment and unemployment mitigation in uh, EU member states. And we will be uh, going to markets already this year to finance this uh, program. Commissioner, thank you for your time this morning. We really appreciate it here at Bloomberg. Peter Oppenheimer, Goldman Sachs Chief Global Equity Strategist. He joins us now. Peter, fantastic to catch up with you. Would you believe it that Europe comes God. out of this week looking clean, looking good compared to the rest of this world? Yeah, and what, what a difference uh, a decade makes, I guess, because obviously Europe was very slow to respond after the last crisis in 2008. Uh, and it, it, it suffered a series of major hurdles over the years that followed that financial crisis. But uh, it's getting its act together from a policy perspective. And as you say in your report, the economy is recovering quite nicely from this downturn. Peter, uh, Tom Keen in New York, good morning. You've got one of the coolest degrees in the undergraduate world, the geography degree, folks, from the London School of Economics. is absolutely legendary. <laughs> Tell me the geography of Chengdu. How far is Chengdu emotionally, politically, from Washington and from Beijing? Hi, Tom. That's a great question. Um, my geography didn't didn't really stretch to that, but I, I you know, I think this is a, a reflection of, of of just the growing tensions. And uh, so far, you're getting one action matched by another, but it looks as if these tensions, at least in the short term, are going to uh, increase. Um, and uh, you know, th th this is one of the factors I think that will probably wear on markets uh, as we move towards the U.S. election at least. Peter, what's the calculation and how it affects equities? Because yesterday, tensions were also rising. The day before, also rising, and yet it wasn't affecting equity prices. Why today, and what going forward will be sort of the trigger point for U.S. stock value valuations? I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to measure the economic impact, because, of course, we don't know entirely what this means in terms of, you know, future uh, trade tensions specifically, which would have a more direct effect on markets. But I think it's one of these things that just increases the risk premium, uh, just the degree of uncertainty. Um, we have had, of course, a tremendous run in equity markets as investors are looking through what is likely to be the worst economic downturn for 60, 70 years into a strong recovery. We've already seen that happening, and we've had the boost from very strong policy stimulus. And I guess now the, the, you know, the reality of what's likely to still be quite a, a tough geopolitical environment, which indeed was an issue that really bore down on equity markets in the first half of last year, is likely to come back. So I think this is a bit of sort of reality coming back to investors as they reassess the risks over the next few months. Peter, do you think they'll continue to look through the economic data if it looks weaker from here? Are there signs that we're losing momentum here in the US economy or do you think we're rolling over again? 
Yeah, I think there is a bit of a loss of momentum. We're seeing it in the in the labour market. Um, you know, clearly the the rebound from in Q3 versus Q2 is going to look very V-shaped, and this is true in pretty much all parts of the world. Uh, as you start to get easing of lockdowns to varying degrees uh, and an improvement from a very very weak base, but I think the question really for investors is going to be what's the sort of run rate after this. Bearing in mind that most economies are not going to get back to the levels of GDP they were seeing at the beginning of this year until late next year or into 2022. And I think that that sort of more cautious reality, together with the geopolitics that you've mentioned, is is really going to be one of the constraints on, on risk assets. Um, uh, 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 over the near term. Well, Peter, you're constantly talking to the buy side and investors, so give us some insight into those conversations. Do you get the sense that anemic growth, so long as that growth is positive, that that is sufficient for risk assets? I, it is, I, 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 partly because, and you mentioned this just earlier on, you know, real interest rates have turned increasingly negative, and that's a positive for risk assets. Uh, there's a lack of alternatives. Uh, forward guidance has meant that you know nominal rates are likely to remain at zero or close to that lower bound for a very long time, and people are, are, are struggling to get a return. So although the absolute returns may come down from here, there is a willingness, I think, to look more positively at risk assets like equities. And actually, interestingly, for the first time for a very long time, uh, there's uh, amongst global investors. Uh, a more optimistic view of, of Europe specifically, which has dealt better with this crisis, but was also, I think, surprised on the upside in terms of the coordination of the policy response. I mean, Peter, the idea of index versus active may be too fancy for you, but maybe we can just say the level of diversification now within our equity holdings. Do you want to be over-diversified, spread it out, or do you want to make more focused bets into late 2021? Oh, I think that, uh, you know, investors, global investors, and certainly dollar-based investors should be looking at diversifying more. We do believe that the dollar is likely to weaken further uh, over the coming years um, as interest rate differentials narrow uh, and as, uh, as deficits rise in the U.S. So that's one reason for diversifying geographically. But also, bear in mind, the last cycle, the last decade, was very extreme in terms of differences across geographies, particularly in equities, you know, massive outperformance of the U.S. That was justified because the U.S. outperformed the rest of the world in terms of profit growth, largely because of its dominance in the technology sector. It still has dominance in that sector, and that sector is still going to be very important. But other areas of the world are catching up a bit. They're becoming a little bit more growth-orientated themselves, not least of which is that's true in Europe. You know, when the crisis started a decade or more ago, uh, banks in Europe were a quarter of the index. That was the, the epicenter of that crisis. They now account for about 7%, about the same weight as the technology sector. So Europe and Asia are getting a little bit more exposed to growth and technology themselves. And I think that justifies uh, more geographical distribution, and I think probably more focus on alpha opportunities and less on beta, so more on stock picking and less on indexes. Peter, given the fact that you believe that investors are underinvested in Europe, how much could it outperform U.S. equity indices over the remainder of the year? Uh, well, if we look out over 12 months, 
And, you know, if we look at things in common currency, in dollar terms, we would expect Europe to be, from these levels, going up around 13%, um, where we've got a relatively flat return for the S&P. A part of that is the difference in, in the dividend. You know, Europe has a higher yield than the U.S. Part of it is the currency. We actually have uh, the euro going to 125 over 12 months against the dollar. But some of it is a bit of a uh, catch-up in valuations. Europe still has a valuation gap, uh, a lower valuation than the U.S. market. And we think with this narrowing risk premium, with this increased confidence in Europe, that will narrow a little bit from here. Peter, great to catch up with you. Send our best to the team, won't you? Peter Oppenheim in there of Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much, sir. We can speak to one of our leading policy analysts, Betsy Stevenson of Michigan, uh, right now. Of course, writing for Bloomberg Opinion uh, and her work, of course, formerly with the uh, Department of Labor. Professor Stevenson, good morning. John's got some very direct questions on the immediacy of where we are. I want to go to your Twitter feed. You have a brilliant retweet out on the fact that this is a nation that can bail out an airline, in this case it happens to be Delta Airlines, not to cast dispersion there, versus what we spend on child care in this nation. How did that happen versus how Europe takes care of children? Yeah, so first of all, let me just say I love Delta Airlines, so I don't mean to pick on them, <laughs> but it does seem to me completely crazy that Congress cares more about saving one airline than the entire child care industry. And the problem is that the, in the United States, we still see child care as a personal problem. This is a women's issue, a personal problem. Uh, come on, it's not, Betsy, it's Betsy. It's an economic issue. Even the fat cats like me, when the child has to go to nursery school, it's like writing a tuition check to Michigan. I mean, come on, it's out. Everybody watching this, everybody listening agrees, this is a busted system. What is a Stevenson response to making our child care on the edge of Spain's? Well, look, the thing is, we can't say, oh, we need to make it cheaper by paying child care workers less. You couldn't pay those folks any less than we already Correct. do. What we need to do is invest as a nation. We have a body of research that, you know, we could stack as high as uh, a building that tells us that investing in early childhood education reaps huge returns for taxpayers. And what people don't understand is if we let our early childhood learning and our child care systems erode during this pandemic, so they're not there for us when we come back, yep. it's not just the parents who are going to suffer, but it's those kids who are going to suffer. We're going to have decades of pain that comes from not investing in these children. Lisa, what Betsy is talking about, leaving their parents. It's so, so important. This is not just a problem for the people on the wrong end of it. It's not about mothers. It's not about people without a job who might miss their payments at the end of this month. It certainly is about them, but it's more than that. It's an economic problem more broadly. And Lisa, we always frame this as just the problem of the person experiencing it. And if we frame it as a broader problem <clears> for the economy, Surely the collective will will be there to do something about it. The U.S. Census has started to try to quantify how big of a problem this is for the economy. And actually, they released a survey today showing that more than 8 million Americans were not in work over the past month because they had a child who was not in school or with child care. And meanwhile, on the other side of that, Betsy, to your point, we have child care centers closing at a very quick rate because they cannot stay in business given the fact that they cannot care for people's children. What are you hoping to see to bridge the this gap in the upcoming months and how big of a hit could it be on the economy if we don't have something to remedy the situation? 
So the permanent closures are the thing that I'm most worried about because they're not going to reopen. We are, we're not going to get a vaccine, and then the next day the you know, brand-new child care center pops open. So we have to keep those businesses going. We need to make sure that we're helping them do the investments they need to do to their infrastructure to make child care safe during uh, the pandemic. And then we're going to have to make sure that those parents who aren't at work because they're staying home with a kid have a way to get back into the labor market. Our labor market, if you think about the labor market as a highway, we have lots of off-ramps for parents, particularly for women, and we don't have very many on-ramps. And so we're going to have to be hitting this from every front, subsidizing child care like crazy and helping the parents get back to work and making sure that the kids are getting the, again, that, that early childhood education. And I think we often need to start talking very directly about who really needs child care in September versus who doesn't. I hear a lot of talk about what should open and what shouldn't open, but we're not prioritizing the kids and families who need it most. And it's time for us to start prioritizing. If we're not going to be able to do it for everybody, let's figure out who's going to be hurt most if we don't get them something. Betsy, it's not clear the collective will down in Washington to address these huge issues is actually there right now. Another huge issue the enhanced unemployment benefits that are set to expire month-end. Betsy, let me ask this of you. Is there any evidence right now the enhanced benefits being offered are holding back labour supply? Well, I don't think that's the, quite the right question. What we have is a glut of labour supply right now. That's unemployment. We have a bunch of people who want jobs who can't get them. When you, if you create a disincentive for some people to take those jobs, that just makes it easier for the people who want them to take them. So I don't think we have any evidence yeah. right now that these enhanced benefits are, are changing the number of people who are employed. That's the real question, right? And I don't think that if we continue to offer some kind of enhanced benefits right now with unemployment as high as it is, with permanent layoffs happening every single day, continually happening, I don't think that our problem is that we're paying the unemployed too much. Um, Paying the unemployed is actually what's keeping the economy going because that's what's keeping uh, demand stimulated and that's what's you know, keeping food on people's tables. It's gave a massive lift to consumption over the last couple of months. It's undeniable. Betsy, the job number here on Wall Street is getting so, so difficult to read going into the next couple of weeks. Continuing claims suggest it might be OK. Initial jobless claims suggest the stall. The high-frequency data says things aren't great in many states across the Sun Belt. How do you view things right now? Well, I do think that those claims data have been really hard to interpret. They certainly didn't predict uh, the last uh, jobs report, and I don't think they're necessarily going to tell us about this one. Look, what I see is I see ongoing permanent layoffs. These are not businesses temporarily shutting down, saying, look, we got to stay safe for a month and then I'm going to bring you back. These are businesses looking ahead at their revenue stream and saying, I can't afford this payroll over the next year. They're letting people go with no intention of bringing them back. And those permanent layoffs, those are the people who have a much harder time finding work again. So that's what I worry the most about. I also think that if you look back to what the reference week was, look, we're talking about the jobs report. We're talking about, you know, the week that included July 12th. I've thought a lot during that week. What's going on this week? And what I saw was new shutdowns happening in the Southwest. And I didn't see a lot of new reopenings. Basically, people who were going to, companies that were going to reopen, bring people back, restaurants, things like that, that mostly happened by, by June. So I think we're going to see a negative number. 
Um, I don't think it's going to be a big negative number, but I don't think we're going to see the kind of, you know, I don't think we're going to see enough people brought back from temporary layoff to offset the large numbers of people who are being permanently laid off right now. Betsy, this raises a really important question. John's been talking about it this morning. Is this a deceleration of the recovery or is this a reversal? Is this a double dip? And what you're talking about is the scope of the second wave, the second order of layoffs enough to throw us into a double dip recession? So I don't think of this as a a double-dip recession, right? I think that the data is confusing because temporary layoffs are not a real recession. The real recession comes when people stop spending money and we we need to shed uh, businesses, we need to shed workers because we're not bringing enough money in. I don't think we've fully seen the scope of our current recession. And what concerns me the most is I haven't seen any real recovery. What I saw was some businesses <clears throat> trying to reopen. Those businesses that reopened, they seem yeah. to, to not exactly be thriving. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's necessarily a double dip, but I, I don't think we're at the bottom of this thing. Uh, Professor, one final question. Uh, Lisa from New York emails in <laughs> and says, could you ask the professor the profound effect of TikTok? on the children of America? I mean, Professor, what do <laughs> we do about TikTok? Um, you know, I, I have to say, I myself enjoy Sarah Cooper on TikTok. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do have, uh, my, my children do seem to, to like TikTok, uh, but I, I'm no expert in media consumption for children. I think you just revealed your politics <laughs> if people didn't know already anyway, Betsy. Fantastic to catch up with you, Sarah Cooper on TikTok. Bessie Gray, <laughs> Bessie Stevenson there, a Bloomberg View columnist. Joining us, Sam Kennedy with the Boston Red Sox, and he was intimately involved, John, in the acquisition of a small football team in the United Kingdom. John, why don't you pick it up in celebration north of London? Well, I can tell you, Sam, that having a Red Sox co-anchor fan, that is almost unbearable sometimes. <laughs> Liverpool fans are equally as unbearable. They've had their moment. Sam, what an experience for all of you. Can you walk us through what you've learned with this experience in the United Kingdom with English football? Well, we've, uh, we've learned a lot. We still have a lot more to learn. As you know, it is uh, an incredibly global club with following uh, like you've, we've seen nowhere else. But congratulations to Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards, Billy Hogan, everyone at Liverpool that uh, put this club back on top of the English Premier League. Quite an achievement. And uh, we're very excited at Fenway Sports Group. And uh, now we're, we're hungry for more trophies, as they say. Sam, how do you retain talent in Premier League? How do you retain talent in Major League Baseball? Well, there's a common theme, and uh, that is that we need to generate the resources on the business side to be able to go out and afford uh, players, uh, whether it's in global football or in Major League Baseball, and consistently reinvest our revenues back into our baseball operation, our football operation. Uh, that's been a 20-year strategy by John Henry, Tom Warner, and Mike Gordon, and that'll continue as long as these guys own and operate these different clubs. Uh, we've had our ups and downs. Uh, it is a, an exciting time right now 
um, for our organization and excited to get going over here in the U.S. on the baseball side. The dreaded Los Angeles Dodgers just unloaded a salary package to a baseball player. I forget his name. I'm sorry. But <laughs> Sam, I mean, come on. There's a pandemic on. There's economic slowdown. You've got TV revenue issues. You're trying to get bodies in the stands. Everybody everywhere else but Fenway and maybe Wrigley Field. Have the Dodgers set up a new war of salary? Well, congratulations to Mookie Betts. He's an amazing player, a great person. We're sorry to see him uh, go with the dreaded Dodgers. Uh, I think it's a, a reflection, frankly, of what a great job the Dodgers have done managing their payroll. They put themselves in this position uh, to be able to make this commitment. And if you're going to make a commitment like that, Mookie's a guy you, you want to do it with. We, we tried. Uh, that's on us. Unfortunately, we were not able to come to terms with him, but we do wish him well. We don't wish the Dodgers well, however. <laughs> well, congratulations to all of baseball for starting a curtailed season yesterday, but it was sort of a disappointing na- uh, game. The Nationals manager coming out and saying, it turned out long, let's just put it that way. We just have to put this one behind us. Do you think that baseball, as an industry, had a missed opportunity getting this off the ground earlier given the fact that this is not a contact sport? You know, I think we, we started right at the right time. Uh, of course, you'd always love more baseball, but in terms of dealing with the virus and looking at the schedule and the calendar and the different markets and the surge and spikes in different areas, Commissioner Manfred just deserves a tip of the cap from the whole industry, as does Tony Clark, for coming together and getting uh, an agreement together to, to, to move forward on health and safety protocols. Uh, it is, this is an experiment. It is, um, it is a high wire act to be sure, but the players are taking it seriously. We're taking it seriously in our facilities. And now we need to execute. And we have a really exciting brand of baseball, 60 games and now an expanded postseason. It'll be great for baseball fans around the world. Uh, Sam, you've got a relationship with legendary stadiums, Fenway Park and <clears throat> Field. They're going to be empty for the foreseeable future. And surely that changes the business. Where you spend money, where you cut money. Sam, talk me through that conversation now and what you're planning for. A season of no fans, two seasons of no fans. What does that look like? Yeah, we're planning. We have our upside, our our mid case, our our low case. Uh, We have disaster scenarios. Um, You know, again, a credit to our ownership group. They continue to invest in the product on the field. But in in terms of our business, it is critical that we get fans back in the stands at some point as soon as it is safe and the the government and health officials say we can do it, both at Anfield and at Fenway Park. For baseball, we rely on gate revenues, 50 plus percent of our revenue. So as you can imagine, this has been devastating for the business, Uh, but the country needs sports, uh, the country needs baseball, uh, and we need to keep going through a pandemic. And flexibility is the order of the day. Everyone has shown a willingness to be flexible and we'll keep doing that and, and, and readjusting our budgets and evaluating as we go forward. Uh, but what's important is we'll be back on the field tonight at Fenway Park. Readjusting your budgets, that goes direct to some of the labor negotiations that hampered the beginning of this uh, season. How much do you expect some of the players to accept, accept cuts in their wages based on what we've seen so far this year? 
Yeah, uh, amazingly, you know, the, the, the players have accepted um, the fact that we're only playing 37.5% of the games regular season, I believe, if, if we get going. So uh, they're taking less wages. Everyone in the front office is taking less wages. Uh, it's everywhere. It's a reality across uh, our country, across the world. It's a very difficult time. None of us have been through a pandemic. I hope we never see it again. And I hope yeah. uh, that we get going uh, into 2021 knock on wood, hopefully a vaccine is around the corner. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Sam Kennedy, it's your fault. Bring up the camera here. I'm doing my hands here. I'm standing outside the batter box doing Nomar Garcia Parra. My son stood in, <laughs> in Brookline, Sam, right off of uh, Beacon Street and did the Nomar thing in the batter's box. How are you going to speed up the game? How are you going to speed up? It's Garcia Parra's fault. How are you going to speed up the game? Uh, well, we need to we need to keep working at it with the players. Um, you know, you can add things like a pitch uh, timer, a pitch clock. You can limit mound visits. You can make rule changes. I agree with you. It's something that we need to do. We're at about three hours and eight minutes. Not good. Great. Yeah, it'd be great to get back in the 240, 245 range, if at all possible. It's a priority for Commissioner Manfred and his team, um, and, and we'll work on it. But at this point, uh, I think uh, our fans and, and all of us are just excited to have baseball back uh, and we'll enjoy having live product, live content on television, on radio, on digital platforms. But I agree with you. We, we, we do want to speed up the game. It's a, it's a priority, especially as we look to connect with that next generation of fans. Hey, Sam, great to catch up with you. Come back soon. I'll whisper it. Congratulations for Liverpool. Sam Kennedy of Boston Red <laughs> Thanks, Sox. Guys. Thank Maybe you, they should sir. buy the tots. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.